The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my very special guest today is UCI Professor of Chemistry and leader of the Roland Blake Research Lab, longtime UCI Professor Don Blake. Welcome, Professor Blake. How are you today? Thank you very much for having me. I'm great today. Super. Thank you for being here. Professor Blake, we met for the first time about three years ago at the Future of Chemistry Symposium at the Beckman Institute. And I must say, I was really impressed with your enthusiasm, your passion for science, and how you felt scientists needed to do a better job getting the message out about the important work they're doing. I've been really looking forward since then to have you on the show, so welcome again. Well, thank you, Kevin. You know, I, so can I yeah, absolutely. just put in here? Yeah, just jump so, in. So life is very interesting in that in 1975... I was a community college student after I had gotten out of the military I'm at a school called Palomar Community College down in San Diego County. I had taken some chemistry classes and it, somehow I was selected as the Bank of America student for number one, I don't know what it was. I got the award from the Bank of America for my community college. And it turns out that there were maybe a dozen community colleges in San Diego County at that time. And there was then like a, a kind of a competition, if you will, where they brought all of the Bank of America students together and were asked questions. And interestingly, the question that was asked of us in 1975, and now I think I know why it was asked, mm-hmm. was should scientists be more vocal about the research that they're doing? And, and I said, no. <laughs> I mean, I, and I, I, I don't know, I said something about Isaac Newton and, uh, calculus and all this and how, you know, there was really no reason to, anyway, I didn't win. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the guy that, that was selected to go on to like the state competition was a guy from Grossmont Community College. And, and he actually said, yes, it's, it's, it's in the best interest of the, the country and the world for scientists to speak up for mm-hmm. the research they're doing. And so I find it interesting that now 45 years later, I'm on the other side of the story. <laughs> You actually probably get the faculty's distinction for being born closest to UCI before it was even here. Can you tell us where you were born and where you lived at the time? Yes, I was born in Orange, California, uh, born at St. Joseph's Hospital. I think my, my dad was a student at Cal State Fullerton. But then shortly after that, 
my older sister and I and my parents moved to Vista, California. And then I, a few years later, we moved to Escondido in 1956. And that's where I grew up. Gotcha. So I'm sort of a North San Diego County boy. Can you briefly tell us about your, what I understand was a fairly average high school academics, but then you kind of have a story that takes you to college. Could you tell us that? Yeah, so I, my high school class had 395 students in it. And I graduated at number, I think it was 162 from the top. So I like to say that I was in the top third or top <laughs> half. But in reality, I mean, I, I got one A and one D and the rest Bs and Cs. And so um, I didn't study much. I was an athlete. I had a great time in high school. I mean, I wouldn't change anything. But what happens, I've learned, is that you know, we, we gain confidence as little kids. I mean, you know, we all remember the, 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 the best reader in the third grade. Or, I mean, you know, that somebody could really read well yeah, or somebody's right. math was good. And so, um, you know, there was a certain attraction to that. And, and those people got confidence that they were, you know, good at something, just like in athletics. And so I didn't have a lot of confidence. I always thought I could... I was knew I could have done better because I really didn't put any effort into school at all. <laughs> but I didn't think I was, you know, that I could have been a top student. I just know I couldn't have been a better student. Yeah. Student. So go forward a, a little bit. The summer of 71 was the draft lottery for Vietnam. Right. right. Uh, it's like all these ping pong balls. They like lotto and they right. pull out a ball and that ball has a date on it, a birthday. And so like April 3rd. And if you were born April 3rd, your lottery number was number one unless you had a, a medical reason or a note from your doctor that says you can't be drafted, then you were going to get drafted. And, and then if you were fortunate and your number was over 300, then you knew you weren't going to be drafted. Mm -hmm. um, and my number was 19. And so I was going to be drafted. So I joined the Navy in late 71. I was in boot camp in January. So I just turned 19 and you know, I did fine. And, um, you're just like three years older than me. It's funny. I graduated in 73 and I never really considered that I could be drafted, but certainly you were a couple years older than me. Were you always thinking in the back of your mind that that was a possibility or were you a little bit like me? Like, well, not really on your mind at all. And then all of a sudden. It's exactly like you. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, the day that, they were pulling the ping pong balls out. I was working at a gas station and a buddy of mine who was a year younger drove by the gas station. He yelled out, hey, 19. I had no idea what he was talking about. I really wasn't even paying attention to the Yeah, thing. yeah. And then I get a phone call at the gas station. I mean, it was not for me, I thought, because it was just a gas station. But, yeah. you know, I answered the phone yeah. and to my mother. Yeah. And she was crying. Oh. And uh, she tells me that my draft number was 19. And then I realized... But up until then, I was just, <laughs> I was an average student yeah. and, and, uh, and just didn't pay attention to it too much. Right. And, um, what kind, and, what kind and of I've always been kind of lucky, you know, and I just didn't think it would happen. But it, it did yeah. happen, and, and I'm lucky it happened yeah. because yeah. in the end, I'm not sitting in my fifth floor rolling hall off with six windows, penthouse corner, if it had not been for my time in the military uh -huh. because uh -huh. it is a shocking and in some ways hilarious and in some ways horrendous and horrible time. And when you're 19 and 20 years old, you're still somewhat impressionable. 
And so uh, it was lack of control, I think, that was the worst, was that, you know, as a, if you were in the military, particularly during a war, you, you have no say. You know, you can't say, well, I quit. Like today, if I, you know, if I were a policeman today and I said, I don't want to do this anymore, I could just quit today or a fireman or an attorney or whatever, uh, or a professor, but not when you're in the military. And there were three times where I was sitting in a safe place and told that I had to be on an airplane or somewhere on a ship, you know, within several hours to go to a not so safe place. So that lack of control was really bothersome. And I had some people I worked with who were higher ranking than I, and they could pick on people. And they tended to pick on certain people. And then I, anyway, so, so the, the point is, is that I made a, a deal with myself that, that I would not want to have a job where my superior didn't have my best interest in mind. Now that's a, a silly thing for a 19 and 20 year old kid to say, but that was how I felt was is that, you know, I, I, th this guy, in fact, he told me, he goes, Blake, people are dying over there. I'm sending you there to be killed. And of course me being that average student, I said <laughs> stupidly, anything to get away from you. So uh, <laughs> I was clearly part of the problem. <laughs> Did you go to Vietnam? I was on a ship. Mm-hmm. But actually where I was going when this guy told me was I was I was stationed in Scotland, which is a nice, beautiful place. But there were problems in a an island called Cyprus, and they were averaging 50 bombs a day going off in Nicosia. And that's where he sent me. Turns out Nicosia went fine. I didn't get hurt. I was near some explosions, but nothing bad happened to me. But it was one of those times when it was like, you know, it's best to have a job where the person who's in charge of you is not in charge of you just because they have more time in. You know, they need to be in charge of you because they're smarter or they're more competent. And so many years later, I had come to UCI. I had worked with Sherry Rowland. And after I graduated, I did a postdoc with Sherry. And a few years later, one of the professors here pulled me aside and he says, Don, you know, you really need to leave. And I said, why? And he says, well, because you're never going to be anybody but Sherry Rowland's flunky or sidekick. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, I'm working for somebody who has my best interest in mind. And so I had at that point fulfilled one of my silly mm. hopes because Sherry Rowland always made decisions that benefited the people who worked for him. Mm. And an example is I get to UC Irvine four years after he and Mario Molina have their huge paper in nature coming out saying that CFCs and aerosol cans could destroy stratospheric ozone. And so while that work had already been done and I had nothing to do with that research, I was in his group at a time when he was once again, I think in 1978, he was elected to the National Academy of Sciences, which is a big, big deal in the United States. And he was not just a big man on campus, but he was a big man environmentally or atmospherically around the world. Mm. And in 1982, there were three of us graduate students that went to a, a meeting in Virginia where Sherry was a speaker. And it was amazing how Sherry would introduce us to every big shot there was. And he went to lunch with us. If he was asked to go to lunch with Jim 
Anderson from Harvard and Steve Wofsey from Harvard and a few others, he would invite us three students and he would never take credit for, he, he would say, you know, Don did this or, or Nicola did this, or, you know, he was such a, a, a wonderful role model in that regard that I never once felt that I needed to leave working with him because it didn't matter to me. Once again, maybe this goes back to me being an average student. I was functioning at a level that was much higher than I ever expected to function. So working with him was an everyday big deal. And interestingly, I remember several years after he passed away, he passed away in, in March of 2012. And when I walk in Roland Hall, there's a little exhibit there and there's a bust of him. And every morning when I walk in, I say, good morning, Sherry. And I don't know, three to four years ago, I, I did the same thing and I looked and I, I missed Sherry tremendously. But then I realized a reason I missed him was because when I was with him, I was more important. <laughs> I mean, it's like being a groupie hanging around with Led Zeppelin or something. And I had that feeling as a graduate student. And I had that feeling, I mean, I was in Stockholm with him when he was awarded the Nobel Prize. I was one of 10 of his guests. My wife and I were two of his 10 guests and I felt special. And so I called Joanne Rowland that day, uh, a few years ago, and I said, you know, Joanne, I, I realize just how shallow I am. <laughs> and she said, how's that done? I said, you know, I miss Sherry, not just because I miss him, but I miss <laughs> feeling important. <laughs> it's, Excuse me just for a moment. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my very special guest today is UCI Distinguished Professor of Chemistry, Don Blake. Uh, he's been on campus since 1978 when he started as a grad student, and he's also part of the AIR UCI organization on campus, which is involved with global atmospheric research. So, Don, how did you go? I'm, I'm interested in, you know, because I was an average student in high school, too, and, and never really made the jump that you made. You know, what's the hardest major, and you decided on chemistry? Like, that would have taken my all to get through chemistry, I think. Was it, well, maybe I'm a little smarter, like maybe you know, like uh, maybe I'm a little smarter than I think because chemistry is not easy. I mean, Let me explain. So the, the type of job I had in the military was cryptology. And so I was a kind of a spy. I didn't, I listened to Morse code mm -hmm. and, uh, and there's sometimes when people are sending messages and there's sometimes when they're not. And there were, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 of us guys um, sitting on a, usually it was like the mid watch was seven, it was 11 o'clock at night until seven o'clock in the morning and things were kind of slow. And, and during those times, um, you know, most guys were smoking and, and all, but uh, um, you'd have your headphones on. So if you heard something, you would start typing, but um People would just play Trivial Pursuit before there was a game called Trivial Pursuit. And um, people would ask their own questions. They'd make stuff up. And, um, and, and I, I could rarely answer any questions. And so I was feeling this, this lack of confidence that I had from my average or mediocre high school years right. um, was, was really uh, hampering me because they would ask a question and I couldn't answer it. And, and, um, and this went on for months and months and months. And I kind of got the feeling like I was really not very smart. I was being told I was a simple mind. And so, um, you know, sometime within the next year, uh, a discussion was 
and I had nothing to do with it, talking about college majors. And this one guy that had a master's degree was was involved and a guy who graduated from the University of Alabama and a couple other people. Um, and and the discussion was, you know, well, this was a tough major and this was a tough major. And and I remember saying, what is the toughest major? Right. And they talked about it. They said chemistry. And I didn't know that there was a, I'd heard of a master's degree, but I didn't know there's a doctorate. Right. And so I said, well, what's the highest level you can get? And they looked at me like I was kind of stupid. Mm. And they said, PhD. And it was sort of at that point when I decided that in order for Don Blake to prove to himself that, that I wasn't that simple mind, that I would get a PhD in chemistry. Now, once again, I had taken chemistry in high school. Okay. I'd taken two years of chemistry in high school. Oh, okay. And I had gotten B's. Okay. okay. So if they had said, you know, that the toughest major was Portuguese, I would not. I would have known right then I couldn't have done it. Or English literature. I couldn't have done it. I can't interpret a poem. And there's no no torture you could put me through that would help me learn how to do that. So the chemistry part was sort of like handed to me. It was then me saying, okay, well, I'm going to get a PhD in chemistry. So that coupled with my earlier, I think, desire to not work for anybody who didn't have my best interest in mind. Mm -hmm. And then once I returned from my tour of duty, uh, I was informed or, or encouraged by some of the older guys who had, you know, been in Vietnam and, and then returned and maybe went back for a second tour or whatever to once us young guys that were leaving were told you have to fly in uniform on the military flight. But once you get to the private airport, then change into your civilian clothes so nobody sees you in your uniform and then, you know, blend in. And so that's exactly what we did. We tried to grow our hair out a bit, um, almost like we were dirty, you know, like mm -hmm. we were an embarrassment. Yeah. So there were sort of three things, you know, on my mind, get a PhD because in chemistry, because you need that to feel good about yourself. Number two, don't work for, for a long period of time with anybody who doesn't have your best interest in mind. And number three, do something that you're proud of rather than sort of embarrassed about. Mm -hmm. So those three things kind of all came together. And, and when I came to the first day I met with Sherry Rowland, I uh, was the first person I met here at UC Irvine um, mm -hmm. in spring of 1978, I decided I need to work with this man. So it all, like I say, this sort of it was the perfect storm. And this, you know, I was learning, I mean, because I'd, I'd done pretty well, not great, but I'd done pretty well at the community college at UCLA. And, and so I came here, not the best student, and worked with Sherry. And he where, guided where, me. Was, was and, this a, a, in postdoc work at this point? Or? No, this is a graduate student. Oh, okay. I had gone to Palomar Community College, and then I okay. went to UCLA for three years. Oh, okay. So now it's 1978, and then I applied to graduate school at UCI, in part because, I mean, I'm a kind of a homebody, and my parents lived in Escondido. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being an hour or so away from home worked for me. So yeah. UC San Diego or UCLA or... UC Irvine or UC Riverside were sort of, you know, I, I really didn't have it as a, I'd done my world traveling <laughs> at 19. Yeah. So I came here as a grad student. I was in Sherry's group. And then I graduated in 84. 
and then I never left. Is the lab still in the same location, or has it moved over um, You know, we've moved up and down. I mean, uh, when I joined the group, it was in the basement, hmm. and it's in the basement again in a different room. That's the Roland Blake group. I'm honored to share the title with Jerry. Yeah. So obviously, over the years, uh, there were a lot of grad students and people, but it seems like you had a particular bond with Professor Roland. Do you think he saw something in you or, yeah, we just really got along well, or do you have a... Um, You know, I think that we were different in some ways. And a way that we were different is, is that I'm a little bit of a type A person in terms of trying to get things done on time. And Sherry was a horrible slacker. <laughs> and so... Um, wow, kind of, that's a surprise. Well, you saw his desk, you'd say, okay, this this makes sense. He, maybe he had his priorities set better than I. I mean, if if we had something that was very important that was due the next day, some report to NASA, let's say, because our end of project report was late. And he would leave saying, okay, I'll finish it tonight. If he got home and Joanne had tickets for the opera, he was at the opera, you know, Um, and and whereas Don Blake would have just stayed all night and worked on it. And so we sort of complimented each other in that regard. He was the big thinker. I mean, he saw the the, the big, the total picture. I was more of a small picture guy, but sometimes looking for details in the small pictures leads to big pictures. So we just... We worked well together. I had total respect for him. And I think he saw me as somebody who really did want to make a difference. And I think that is something that made him comfortable with me sort of running the group. Because from the late 80s, I pretty much wrote all of the proposals. Mm. Now, I was getting funded because Sherry Rowland's name was on them. So uh-huh. I, wasn't, I wasn't foolish enough to think that it was because of me. Yeah. But... And so then Sherry retired in 1992 or 94, I forget, and was the foreign secretary of the National Academy of Sciences for eight years, I think, as a half-time job in Washington, D.C. We talked almost daily, but we continued to do some really interesting research. We were well-funded. And then in 1997, there was a job opening at Georgia Tech in their Earth and Atmospheric Sciences Division. And I worked with Georgia Tech quite a bit on a lot of these NASA projects. And so I mentioned to one of their people, I was at a meeting in Germany, and I mentioned this one guy, see, I'm curious about this position. So he went back and talked to the chair. And a couple weeks later, my wife and I were flown to Georgia. And I interviewed, Mm. and they showed her homes and real estate mm. stuff. Yeah. So and, you were, it was it, real. It was, it was a faculty position. Yeah. And a reason Kevin, why I even thought of it was because I was still on soft money. Okay. And soft money means if our grants ran out, I had no job. Mm. And so 14 years I'd been on soft money and the money was coming in because we were doing exciting research you know, ozone hole stuff and fires and urban pollution. I mean, it was great research and great fun. Does that mean you weren't tenured or? No, no, or, not tenured at all. No, no safety net at all. Is, is that what soft money means? Soft money means that, that yes, that the yeah. money is not coming from the state. Mm-hmm. The money is coming from grants. 
And while I didn't feel uncomfortable being on that, I must have made the mistake of telling my wife. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. So, uh, so she, you know, encouraged me to do it. So we went down to Georgia and she was ready to move. You know, yeah. the houses they showed her were just yeah. way too big. And because, I mean, we had collaborated for a dozen years and the kind of work that our group did was exactly what they needed. Yeah. And they'd had a guy die and they had a guy not get tenure. So I remember sort of the, the last hour of my time there, they told me, they said, well, what do you think about coming here, Don? And I said, well, I need to think about it. Yeah. And they said, you tell us how much money you would need in startup. They pretty much were saying, not that I could name my price, but I, at the time yeah. I was making $75,000 a year here at UCI. And they were offering me, before I made a counteroffer, which I never did, 155,000. Like that's <laughs> for, huge. Like for, double. It's doubling. For 9 months, for 9 months. And so yeah. once again summer salary would have bumped that up another, uh, you know, 50. Yeah. So this is huge. And the cost of living in Atlanta is much cheaper than it Right. Is. Right. And your wife is ready to go. <laughs> I'm interested so, in like how this didn't happen. Well, and okay, yes. And so I came back and you know, my wife was ready to move yeah. and I came into work. Yeah. And Sherry's office is one end of the hall. Mine was at the other end at the time. And he came into my office and sat down. And I always had something to eat, peanuts or dried fruit or something. He sat there for an hour and we talked about it. And he said, so how was it? And I told him. And he said, well, what's keeping you from taking the job? Because, I mean, it was, they were pretty much, so they said, tell us what would make the decision easy. That's what they'd said on their end. Right. So, I told Sherry, I said, well, you know, Sherry, the thing that's my biggest drawback on this is that I've already talked to the, the group and they would all go with me. Oh, wow. Wow. And Well, because he wasn't writing the proposals. He was still doing his National Academy work. At that point, is it known as the Roland Blake Lab? Yeah, I think it was even before I became a professor. I think it was actually Sherry's the one that probably called it that. Yeah. He was the first one to... I think invoke my name into the lab's name. That, so that's amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, typical Sherry. But so yeah. tell him, I say, my biggest drawback on this Sherry is you. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, the world is better if Sherry Rowland is going around as, you know, the foreign secretary or, or just Sherry Rowland talking about the importance of atmospheric research mm -hmm. and, and of current research. And mm -hmm. I said, if I take the group, and he said, and you should take the group. And I said, then you're out of research. And I said, I don't want to be the one responsible for taking Sherry Rowland, who, you know, once again, this was uh, the, the 90s. You know, he'd won the Nobel Prize in 1995. This is three years later. This was a, a sh I mean, he was always a star, but this was, you know, he was a shining star. Yeah. And, yeah. and had so much clout among the scientists of the world. So I said, I don't want to be the one that, yeah. so anyway, he thinks about it, kind of nods his head a bit and he says, he grabs a, a handful of peanuts, puts them in his pocket and walks back down to his office. And so the next day he comes back to my office and he goes, uh, how you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. You know, and I mean, Laura, my wife was sort of pressuring me, you know, to make the decision. And I said, how are you? And he says, I didn't sleep very well last night. And I said, uh, why? He says, well, Joanne and I talked about 
your situation. Joanne's his wife. And Joanne mm-hmm. is incredible, but extremely protective of Sherry because there were times when he was the bad guy in terms of industry because he was proposing that the CFCs were going to destroy stratospheric ozone and we needed to stop using them. And DuPont and Dow were making a half a billion dollars a year on them. And so he was mm-hmm. a lot of bad press about Sherry Rowland early on. And so Joanne was like his biggest defender. And so I thought, oh my gosh, all these things Sherry's done for Don Blake and Lori Blake and the kids. And Joanne got a couple of my raises for me, you know, and I mean, and now it looks like I'm turning my back on them. And he says, yeah, well, you know what Joanne said? And I thought, oh, <laughs> he says, um, he says, you tell Don Blake that he needs to do what's best for Don Blake and his family, not what's best for Sherry Rowland. And, you know, I got tears in my eyes and I just said, I can't leave. I mean, I thought, you know, I mean, because once again, this was my my dream job. Somebody who's in charge of me who is interested in my best interest. And um, he said, well, you want to stay here? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, yes. I said, but I can't stay as a on soft money. Yeah. So he went down to Ralph Cistrone's office. It was Ralph was the dean. Yeah. And he said, you know, Ralph, we got to do something. Yeah. And in part, Kevin, I mean, Sherry wanted me to stay because we had this great relationship and we were a a very powerful team together. Mm -hmm. But departments are judged in many ways. You're judged on how many students you graduate. You're judged on how much money you bring in, how many papers you have. And what the department didn't know was that Sherry was getting credit for all of my work. Okay, which is fine. That's how it works. If you're the faculty, if Don Blake, somebody in your group brings in a million dollars a year, then when Sherry would go up for a, a merit increase or something, yeah. it would, he would show that million dollars right? and all the papers. And so when, when it was presented to the department that Don Blake would be taking a million, back then it was like a million and a half dollars a year mm-hmm. to Georgia. And mm-hmm. my 30 or 40 papers a year <laughs> to Georgia. Mm-hmm. The, the chemistry department's ranking was going to drop mm-hmm. because there are certain metrics where it's the, what is the average amount of funding, you know, per faculty. Right. And at the time, maybe UCI had a department that had 35 people and maybe the average was uh, $200,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Don Blake took a million yeah. We were going to drop on our payment. Yeah. So yeah. there were, and plus you bring in a million and a half dollars, there's overhead. Right. And so the university of California was going to lose $300,000 a year. So there were lots of, of reasons in addition to Sherry wanting me to stay and me maybe being worth staying, even if it wasn't for the money. But so he and Ralph pushed it through. And interestingly, I've talked to, colleagues since then who felt that Sherry had really bowled them over, you know, or bullied them into having Don Blake as a faculty, when in reality, they thought it was just that it was a paid postdoc for Don Blake. And I mean, since then, I've been the chair of the department. (laughs) Right, right, right. And these same people who, you know, questioned whether I should have been a professor are now they just, we just sort of laugh about it. So anyway, it, yeah. it, it all worked yeah. out wonderfully. Yeah. And, but a lot of things had to happen to get me to this point. Yeah. So, uh, 
Interesting story. Thanks for sharing with us. I'm just going to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and I am visiting with the leader of UCI's Roland Blake Chemistry Research Lab. And in the tradition of Nobel Award winning scientist Sherry Rowland, who has since passed on, I know one of his encouragements of you, Professor, is to always talk about your research <laughs> and what's happening in your field. I know that your lab works on trace measurements of gases in the air and also human breath. Just shed some light on what you've been working on lately and, and how it's impacted us. Yes. So our primary tool is stainless steel gas canisters that are evacuated, that we go someplace and open up the can and suck in the air. And it's a very archaic way of doing things. And if somebody in 1978 said that the work I was doing in 1978 is exactly what I would be doing in, you know, 40 years later, I would think that I had not made much progress. <laughs> and and it, it's, it's really the same, you're using the same uh, instruments, basically? Same exact canisters Interesting. and all gas chromatography. I mean, the chromatography has come a, a long way, but yeah, same exact instruments. I've not learned anything <laughs> um, in terms of that. But So obviously it must be working well or no one's come up with a better idea. Well, I mean, there are a friend of mine at Caltech, Paul Weinberg has a an instrument that measures in real time, and we fly on the airplane. His lab, his group is right next to mine on the NASA aircraft mm. on most missions that have occurred during the last I don't know fifteen or twenty years. And so he measures something in real time, but he can't measure some of the gases that we measure. So it's a complementary thing. Mm -hmm. And plus, his instrument is like weighs like a ton, and is not really mobile. I mean, it's mm -hmm. mobile when you put it into the airplane, you lock it down. But an example, Porter Ranch, Aliso Canyon, the blowout, the natural gas blowout that occurred, I don't know, five years ago. I went up with a group member and with some empty canisters and just along the border of the Southern California gas fence took air samples, brought them back, analyzed them, and lo and behold, look what we got. That then got me on an airplane that was hired by the California Resources Board, and I think by the Southern California uh, Gas Company, and we flew downwind of this spewing thing. So once again, it was just canisters, very simple, bring them back to the lab, analyze them. And while the guy on the plane had a real-time methane measurement, we measured 50 other gases. So we could tell what was in the natural gas besides methane. And we have done this in Mexico City, We've done it around the world. We did it in fires last summer. The COVID problem that we have now, we partnered with my friend Paul Weinberg at Caltech and a group at UC Riverside to study what kind of pollution do we see during COVID when the amount of cars on the road are lower? What has happened to our pollution in, in that kind of event? We've got samples that were collected on NASA's student project where we had students in 20 different states, they each collected samples between April and July in their hometown. And we're analyzing those now to see what happened during COVID because the EPA relaxed a lot. I mean, they were pretty much told in March, they don't need to regulate. Mm. And so the question is, are we going to see in these samples that were collected in Texas and all, are we going to see increases mm -hmm. in certain 
gases from industry as opposed to decreases like we saw in gases in Los Angeles. So the canisters make it very simple and then we bring them back to the laboratory and do a very detailed analysis. And so it's going to continue. I mean, as kludgy as shipping canisters from point A to point B and bring them back and using a somewhat a, a dated analysis is still very, very powerful. Are you doing it all over the world or are there specific areas that you've chosen to do more studies in? So we have a study that actually Sherry started back in the 70s and NASA has funded that study since 1982 where we're actually looking for the cleanest air possible. So we go to islands in the Central Pacific, we go to New Zealand, we go to Alaska and we're trying to find the absolute cleanest air hmm. because the cleanest air tells us what are the backgrounds of some of these gases because what you don't want to do is to sample in Los Angeles and attribute all of the bad gases or enhanced mm-hmm. gases to Los Angeles emissions mm-hmm. because you need to know what's blowing in mm-hmm. and so we have this long term we have the longest actually in the world it's the longest standing measurements program for looking at clean air. So we have the clean air and then we sample downtown Inglewood. We go to the airport in LAX to see what kind of emissions are coming out. We go both ways, clean air to very dirty air. We flew on a a NASA project around the world. We would go from Los Angeles sort of uh, all the way to the, the North Pole, down the Pacific to almost to the South Pole, and then up the Atlantic and doing up and down. We'd do up and down maybe, oh, geez, we fly, flights were like 10 hours long. We'd go up and down maybe 10 times from 40,000 feet down to 500 feet over the ocean. Mm. And that was more of a, what is the atmosphere in each season between 2016 and 2018? What does it look like? And can we do this study again 10 years from now with some similar instruments and see how the world has changed? This deals with satellites and so on. So it's a program that Sherry started back in the, to measure CFCs in canisters that has just sort of worked its way into to many, many studies. And we are constantly, you know, I'm not bragging, but I mean that, that somebody decides they want to put together a study and, and, and we are called because we're not because we're cheap, but because we're very flexible. I mean, if something happened today, Heaven forbid, if something happened today, an oil spill somewhere, we could be out sampling today or tomorrow. And you can't do that with a, with most big, you know, fancy pieces of equipment. Mm-hmm. So sometimes being low tech is, is mm. beneficial. Yeah, gotcha. What about, on the other hand, the human breath analysis your lab has done? I thought that was very interesting. Have you succeeded doing blood tests aren't necessary because of the human breath analyzers? How is that going? We we started about 20 years on the breath. Sharon and I were both really excited about it. And I think it's got great potential. But the problem is that trying to come up with a cohort that is a constant. Well, what what I'm trying to say is is that, you know, each of us has our own routine. And, And it turns out that each person has like a fingerprint in their breath. But the problem is, is that this 50 or 60 gases that we emit at different ratios can tell us a lot about disease and all. But for example, we were doing a study on autism 
And it was a very limited study. It was with a group here on campus. And what we found was that the autistic, and there weren't a lot of them, maybe three to five autistic children and then three to five children that did not have, that were the controls. And we found that um, a gas called limonene was present in large amounts in the breath of autistic children. So we get all excited thinking, oh man, this is, you know, I mean, because if there were actually a, a breath test that could determine whether a child had autism, I mean, autism obviously is a, a broad spectrum thing, but something that was actually a marker as opposed to social interactions and all. And so that is a huge thing. Turns out that autistic children, at least these five, liked Mountain Dew. <laughs> and Mountain Dew has a lot of limonene in it. And so we got all excited. Yeah. And then it turns out it was because of something these children tended to like in their diet. And so it got so complicated. So we have not actually, oh, I say this, that we've not done any work on breath in, I don't know, maybe five or more years. However, a paper was submitted last week <laughs> from a group at UC San Diego where we did studies. It looks like they have come up with something from our research. So who, who knows? You know, maybe we'll right. be back doing breath stuff pretty soon. In terms of COVID, this is the whole mask thing, right? Have you looked at that at all? Or is that, no, that's not your area. It's different. So we would not be able to measure COVID. Okay. We're a gas group. Mm. And so we don't measure anything that is very heavy. And what I mean by heavy is, is that even just one COVID virus by itself weighs a lot. Compared really? To, Interesting. Well, I mean. <clears throat> compared to what you usually study. Yes. We do gas chromatography. And so COVID, you would need something else. What we could do would be to test the breath of a person who had COVID because, you know, they develop breathing problems. There are gases that are given off by bacteria and by other things in the lung that we would actually be able to quantify. It wouldn't mean that they had COVID, but it would tell us that they had some sort of a, a pulmonary problem. I mean, we proposed doing a study where we followed patients who were being given some antibiotics for pneumonia, and we would be able to tell very early whether the antibiotic was being effective because, you know, if you take an antibiotic, I don't know, it seems like it takes a day or two before you actually start the feeling any better. But that doesn't mean that, that the antibiotic isn't killing the majority of the bacteria or whatever it is that you've got in your lungs or your whatever, you're actually going to express that much faster than you would just how you feel. And so knowing that, the, you know, the antibiotics that you're taking are actually doing what they want them to do would be very, very important. Let me turn it around. Uh, I had uh, prostate cancer in 2004 and I had surgery and everything went great, except I got an infection. Mm. And so three weeks later, I had 106 fever, 105. Well, anyway, it's high. Um, yeah. And it turns out it was MRSA, which is this antibiotic resistance type thing. And but for the first two days, they had all these bags of antibiotics hanging, trying to make me better. And I wasn't getting any better. Yeah. And it took, I don't know, 48 hours or something 
for them to actually culture the whatever and find out that it was MRSA. And so if I had been able to do breath tests every, you know, when they, when they were hanging the bags, uh, you know, uh, every six hours, um, we might've been able to tell that I was not getting any better. Mm-hmm. Um, not just by looking at me and my, my, my fever, but by the fact that the, my bacteria were still cranking out all the same levels of gases. Whereas once they put me on uh, vancomycin, my temperature dropped at some point and, and so on. So knowing whether, you know, an antibiotic is working earlier than other metrics can tell mm-hmm. you would be quite important. So there's right. still that in breath. But at this point, my collaborators have, um, I said they've slowed down, but they're older than I am. And so, so that research has been tabled. You've been around at UCI for a long time. Any thoughts of retirement or it's like, heck no. Well, you know, I enjoy coming to work every day and I never know. I said the Monday telecon or Zoom meeting that we had with Los Alamos and UC Riverside and us was very exciting. It's got me excited about the potential for this flight that we flew last year at this time. And so I have no reason to retire. I still enjoy work. I need to retire so that I can spend more time with my wife and kids. But at this point, once again, it's, it's an exciting field. And uh, walking away from it when it is still very exciting, it, mm-hmm. it's a tough thing to do. So if I do retire, I still plan on being involved you know, at a reduced level. But for several years, I'm hoping. Gotcha. In terms of all the awards that you've received over your career, do you have one that you're most proud of? Well, first of all, let me challenge you on that. I worked for Sherry Rowland, okay? Uh-huh. And so uh, when people talk to me about a lot of awards, I sort of all, not, I never compare <laughs> myself to Sherry, but I do. And l- let, me, let me tell you a little quick story. So okay. I got, I was honored with a Lodz and Laurel Award maybe 10 years ago. No, maybe 12. It was research or something. I forget exactly what the, I, I can look at the, the thing and tell you. But, I think uh, it was 2009. <laughs> okay. So we're at the Lodz and Laurels thing, which is a wonderful event. And Sherry Rowland and Joanne were there, Jim Pitts and Barb Benlayson Pitts, and my wife and daughter. And when you go, they give you this green pen that's, that's like a, that signifies that you're a Lodz and Laurel winner. Uh-huh. Okay. Or, or, or whatever. Yeah. And so Barb Benlayson Pitts, had hers on and John Hamager had his on. And so I got mine. So I kind of was joking with Sherry. I said, you know, gee, Sherry, you know, uh, <laughs> I see you don't have a pen. Uh, I, said, I guess this looks like I've been awarded something that you haven't. And he kind of smiled. He says, they didn't pass out pens when I got it. <laughs> so, That's funny. So, yeah, he always was there with a zinger, you know. So, so yes, I have been awarded a number of awards, and each time I was flattered. But the most important one I think that I will ever receive is the one that was most recently announced, an Academic Senate Award, the, uh, the Better World Award. And that actually moved me to tears because, wow. once again, it goes back to my story that I've been telling you the last hour of being an average student, hooking up with Sherry Rowland, he told us students that we, you know, if we could choose research projects that, that benefited, you know, society, that, to try and do that. And then my desire to work on something that people viewed as good as opposed to 
my military time where I was sort of ashamed or at least not encouraged to show my involvement in the military during the Vietnam period. And so it all came home when I got that uh, I had I'd done something that Sherry Rowland had encouraged me to do, or not just me, but several people. And I was being acknowledged that I had done something that was viewed as positive for humanity. And yeah. so uh, it's, a, it's a huge honor. I don't feel worthy, but I, I, I think that, um, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm quite pleased. And uh, so I'll, I'll leave it yeah. at that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Professor, there's all kinds of last minute questions I could ask here, but we've run out of time. Could I ask that sometime in the future, could you come back again? We would love to hear more about your work. I would be very happy to do that, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to UCI Distinguished Professor of Chemistry, Don Blake, for being with us today. What an amazing journey he took us on. From average high school student to getting drafted into the military in 1971, to his discovering he wanted to do something in his life that he was proud of and how he wanted to work for someone who had his best interests in mind. And all along the way, we laughed and enjoyed his insightful stories about his journey and his mentor, advisor, friend, and partner, Nobel Prize awardee, Sherry Rowland. I look forward to having Professor Blake on the show again in the future. Thank you also to piano man extraordinaire Fred Kaplan for all my show theme music from his excellent blues CD, Signifying. Check it out. And coming up next is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra discussing important business topics in today's business environment. Stay tuned. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer, wishing you a pleasant good evening. Don't forget to keep wearing those masks and keep socially distancing. We will get through this. So happy trails in the meantime. So long, everybody.